Welcome to the Art of Outreach. I am Mike Mitchell, the Director of Community Outreach for the Tennessee Art Education Association. I'm also the Director of Arts in Mount Pleasant Schools in historically rural Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. Today we have with us a really exciting guest, my friend Peg Ketch, who is the Distance Learning Coordinator for the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Peg, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Of course. So Peg and I met in uh, 2015 or 16, we were working on a project with um, about mingering Mike at the Smithsonian, and then um, that led, that was a kind of a something that Peg inherited from a conversation that had started with me and another group of kids, and then we, we rolled into doing some things with 4D um, and a lot of really cool projects um, at the Smithsonian, and so, and this is all through this program they have where Peg and her group of volunteers and staff do free video conferences for teachers all over the United States, all over the world, for free, as many times as you would like. And that's how Peg and I met, and we have just stayed in touch, and I have become um, a real advocate and encourager of teachers all over to utilize um, what Peg and her um, staff offer through, through the Smithsonian American Art. So, Peg, talk a little bit about, first of all, like your role at um, SAM and, you know, kind of why distance learning, and then that will kind of roll into the methodology that you all use in your free video conferences. Sure. Well, the program at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, which we commonly call SAM, started more than 20 years ago. It was a program that was devoted to reaching beyond the walls of the museum. And so the primitive equipment back then and the ability to be able to connect with people around the country was pretty limited. But we had a staff of volunteers who really were interested in getting the word out about SAM's collection. And then as technology improved and the building also improved its Wi-Fi and people were able to understand that they can learn about us without having to come to Washington, D.C., the program just kept growing and growing till now that we're able to offer it for free because they train a core of about 20 volunteers and they make themselves available in a number of ways. We train them and then they can choose among 11 topics and from those topics the public selects one we pair them up with one of those trained presenters and the presenter puts together a powerpoint based on artworks in our collection now that might sound simple at first but any other institution would have to rely first of all on having high quality digitized images and we've got more than 44,000 digitized images that we can choose from my presenters like to do this because I'm not dictating what they're putting in it even though they have to abide by the topic what's the topic one of them happens to be to see is to think you can use any artwork to help people understand how to be able to read it that leads to the methods that we use and the method is not us lecturing. If you came to us for a video conference, we're gonna first of all find out what your goals are that you want the students to learn. And then we select artworks that are gonna help them learn that. So it's almost like backward design. And in the course of doing that, we'll ask students questions. We wanna know what they're thinking. And most of all, we wanna be able to challenge their way of thinking. But at the same time, they're learning through art and it might be history, might be about our heritage, 
I mentioned 44,000 plus images that have been uh, digitized. We have one of the largest collections of works by and about African Americans, by and about Latinx, and by and about American Indians. So we can also do a number of different topics dealing with America's heritage. One of the things that I really grew on when you when I was connecting with you all was, and this was early on, this was before we've all used to Zoom conferences and all used to kind of doing those things is um, once you make contact with someone at the distance learning program, you really have to learn how to kind of look at your calendar and think about when you're going to be talking about something. So you need to know what standards that you're interested in. And so talk a little bit about how aware you are. So for those teachers who maybe go, I don't, I don't know who they are, what they're doing. Do they know about our state standards? Are they aware that, you know, I'm a fourth grade art teacher and I'm going to be talking about things. Talk about how prepared you are with your staff of volunteers to think about the visual art standards. Well, let's talk about it a, a coordinated effort between the teacher and our, our program. So, for example, a teacher will look at our website, pick a topic, schedule a date and time, first and second choice. We find a presenter who's available during that date and time and pair them up. The presenter contacts the teacher who hopefully has already read on our website about the standards that that topic will teach and then massages that. If the teacher says, well, I really would like to include more of your heritage collection, the presenter will adjust their PowerPoint to be able to do that and make that applicable. So what we're talking about, and I mentioned very briefly about the methodology, but the, the teacher needs to know that their students are not going to be lectured at, that they're going to be engaged. They may even be doing some very simple learning to look activities. But again, it's to make them interested and give them a reason to be able to look and to want to learn. So I hope that answers that. It did. And I just, I just know for me as, as a teacher who um, at the time was really interested in bringing people into my classroom. This was the first time I'd brought people virtually into my classroom. Again, this was 2015, 2016. And it's the first time that I brought someone virtually into my classroom who was also an educator and hyper aware of how standards and how, um, you know, like how a lesson was going to play out and also had already thought about a lot of the things that I had not thought about, which was making sure that we had a check in before to make sure our technology was working. So you guys are just like, like initially I've, it, it can be a little overwhelming. I think now it's not at all because people are so used to moving towards this idea of having these virtual conferences that, um, but again, it just helped me grow as an educator to really learn how to plan and collaborate with someone from a different place, um, literally from DC, whereas I was in Nashville and kind of be on my P's and Q's. And once that worked, once that once I was able to go through that one time, I realized that all that planning ahead with you all and all that coordination made that lesson go really smoothly and allowed that inquiry-based methodology you all use to work so well because the kids were comfortable because they weren't stressed because I wasn't stressed because we had already worked all the stuff out. And so for, for people that are interested, know that it is. Uh, it, it really is a, a really nice coordinated effort and how 
Peg and her staff and volunteers work with you to make sure that you feel comfortable and that they know that even though they've been doing this for 20 years, stuff's always going to possibly go wrong because technology is involved and everyone's working with different platforms and everyone's figuring those things out. So, um, yeah, you totally answered that question. I just, it was, it was really interesting for me to kind of help me kind of grow up and realize that um, I needed to be able to do a few things to position you all to do what you did really well. And every time I've ever done it, I've always, I feel like I've gotten better in my classroom um, because um, once all that technical stuff, and it's not a ton, it just needs to kind of, the, there's a baseline. Each time there's, uh, each volunteer is using different images. They're using different, um, they're coming from the collection from a very specific point. I just, I've always thought that that, that was really great. Um, Talk a little bit about, go ahead. Let me add a little bit to what you're saying is that we, um, I mentioned about the inquiry based, but we also want to get the teacher engaged. So if the teacher hears us saying something that they know the students need to make a connection with, they, we want them to jump in. This is not just us, the experts. We want them, the students to see us as a team and that we're working together. So with that said, a teacher may want to use us to introduce the subject. They may want to use us as a way of being able to deepen what the students have already started to learn, or they may want to use this as an assessment. And that's important for the presenter to know at what point they're bringing this information into the student's mind and into the classroom. Yeah, and that's another great point is to understand, I think that, um, for teachers to understand that you all want to be a resource and for them to not get too overwhelmed, even though it's super cool that it's the Smithsonian, but to not get too overwhelmed with that and that you want to be a resource for them exactly the way they want you to be a resource for their classroom. And right. so this can be, like you said, this is how we're going to introduce um, this particular topic or you know what, this is, we're going to, we're going to do a really cool assessment and we're going to figure out a way and collaborate with, because I'm sure you have many ways because you have lots and lots of experience with lots and lots of different teachers and you'd be able to say, oh, well, actually, this was a cool way that someone decided to utilize us. Or you could also go this way. Speaking of that, talk some about, um, so you've done, you do distance learning. So you're in and out of classrooms all over the world. Talk about some of the relationships that you've been able to build as as someone who maybe isn't physically getting to meet people, but is but you're virtually meeting people often, and that you're having pretty deep relationships with them. Um, for instance, you and I—we've now known each other five years because we've been able to stay in contact and talk about how how what the kind of the art of those relationships is when you're doing virtual learning. Well, you mentioned that we do. Let me start off by saying we mentioned about students around the world. So I actually have a split position. One half is doing the training of the volunteer core that we've already talked about. The other half is a contract we have with the Department of Defense to do professional development training as well as developing resources for students of military families on bases around the world. So I didn't mention before that when we do these video conferences, we do it when the class is in session. So we want to make sure. So you are, you are reminding folks that um, this is not asynchronous. It needs to be, you need to schedule with your volunteers and with you and your, um, exactly like if it's in a 10 o'clock class in Tennessee, 
then that's when your volunteer has to be available in Washington, D.C. at that time. Exactly. And when we're working with the Department of Defense, then we're in the studios and we usually use studios with green screen, similar to what you see when you watch the weather report. So we're literally standing in front of that artwork, able to point things out and have a better conversation about it. Now that we're working from our homes, we don't have green screen, but we can still do that animation and be able to engage people in working with that particular artwork. That's cool. So who are some of the teachers that you feel like you've um, had multiple um, opportunities to work with that have kind of grown your idea about what the program can be and, and maybe even um, helped you collaborate towards creating new, um, new topics that other people can access? Well, let me start by saying that it's not always the teacher that contacts us. It might be the media coordinator or somebody who is in charge of the library and finding resources for all the teachers in the school. So depending on who that is and how they can see the vastness of what we cover, they may come back to us with requests. You know, but it might be through an English language arts teacher or through an art teacher. Just because we're an art collection, we teach all other subjects. Even, believe it or not, we have things that we can use to teach physics and be able to talk about different STEM, STEAM ideas. So the answer to your question about repeat, people may come back because they want to use this every year. New students, they want us to have them have the same experience. Or they may say, you know what, we can touch points with you throughout the year, here, here, and here, based on what we know you can do with your topics and with your collection. Otherwise, there might be something that's based on the format. So you first came to us with a particular request, but you know now that we can offer programs that help students, for example, learn how to think like a curator and turn around and be able to turn their school into an interactive museum. So we've got programs that make you feel like you're going behind the scenes and you're being able to develop that career awareness of what it takes to be able to put an exhibit together and at the same time learn how to express yourself in a new way. The other thing I want to mention is that most of the, the most common response we get is teachers say, you have taught us new ways to ask questions. Because we're not asking questions for a specific date or for a specific yes or no answer. We want to ask questions that help people put something in context and be able to develop relationships. And honestly, if some teachers can't handle that, they're not going to come back. And that's okay. We want teachers to feel comfortable with us challenging their students' thinking. But it's always age and standard appropriate. Sure. And I, I really think that's important for, you know, this platform, which is generally going to have an audience of visual art teachers. But in your building, make sure that if you're having these uh, a positive experience like I have had with with working with um, um, the Sam collection and volunteers that you're sharing it with your social studies um, and math and science and English language arts um, peers in your building and that's that's been one of the things that again that I've kind of grown to understand when when looking at the topics is that how hard you all work to make sure that though this is coming, as you said, from an art collection, that it is not only for visual art teachers. 
It can be for that really interesting physical education teacher that wants to do something in relation to it. Like you guys are open to any teacher connecting with you all on this. Um, one thing that I got to do this year with uh, Mount Pleasant High School, uh, Leanne Ruppel's class, they were able to do the um, social action and social justice topic. Um, talk a little bit about that because it, it, it was really cool. It was a really neat way to, to start thinking about um, specifically now in this exact moment, but even, even when we did it um, in, in late um, or early 2020, um, it's still like the idea of kids having access to social media and being able to say things um, and challenge folks. I just think it's so cool how, how you all um, kind of went through your collection and pulled um, some really old documents about the history of social action and social justice through art and how that translates to what's happening um, in a contemporary setting. So there is a tour that if you physically could walk in our museum, and we are closed right now due to COVID-19, called Social Justice. We looked at that topic and realized that we wanted to adjust it a bit based on what we knew was digitized in our collections. So we're calling it social commentary slash social action because we can't answer necessarily the justice question. We can certainly bring to the fore works that are commenting on social injustices or justices. We can also bring social action artworks and leave students with the question is, what would you do now? What's your voice? What is it that you support? And how would you do that? And this grew out of a number of requests from social studies teachers saying, I want to be able to have my students realize they can do more than just march in the streets. What are ways that they can be able to adjust and be able to make their voice be heard? So that's how we came up with that topic. And then we piloted that topic, thank goodness, with the um, your teacher's interest in being able to give us feedback on that before we go public with it. But it is going to be the 11th topic that will be the new one introduced this year. Now, we have been mulling this over for a while, and I don't want anyone to get the idea that we're doing it just because of all the unrest that's going on right now. This started almost two years ago, thinking about what would be a relevant topic what would be something that people could sink their teeth in starting from middle school up to high school, which is what we're aiming it at in terms of those standards. But at the same time, I just have to say to my um, to people that are listening to this, that my museum doesn't shy away from sensitive issues and sensitive topics. And we work very hard to make sure that our collection represents that and, and can focus on that. And then our job as distance learners is to be able to figure out how to help guide students through that kind of a discussion so that, again, they can take what they need to to apply to whatever situation they're in and figure out how to deal with it. I love that you made that distinction because I, I'd written down social justice. I love that you made that it's really important for you to make the distinction of saying, Mike, this is not what we are in the business of. We are in the business of asking questions and positioning kids to ask questions through existing um, documents, which are in your particular case, sculptures, 
video art, paintings, graphic design, um, video games, all the things that Sam collects. And you're saying, look, we're not, we're not here to pass judgment, which is ultimately what, what justice is going to be talking about. We're here to be inquiry based. We're here to position kids to have really great questions. Um, and like you said, that's not always comfortable because all of us, teachers, kids, everybody wants to know the answer. Please tell me how to think about that, please, and so that I don't have to do it myself. And what you guys are saying is like, nope, that's the lazy part of our brains. We have to get good at asking questions. We have to, we have to um, push students and teachers towards, um, it's okay to have more questions than when you started, right? Like that's an okay thing. Over the course of our interview, our Zoom call froze up several times. I've been able to edit out most of those. In this particular case, we never ended up getting back to the original topic that we started with, and we started a phone call instead of a Zoom call. So our interview picks up with that phone call. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I, I was hoping you'd pop back on, you didn't, and I was just kind of trying to do a filler and not have to end it. I was talking about how important it was for you to make that correction when I talked about social justice and that that's one of the things that you're good at. And I think it's, my guess is because you're so used to not being in a room with someone, so you don't have the physical context cues always, but that you language becomes really hyper important for you. And so that you're, yeah. when you're, when you're having those conversations with teachers is making sure that they're not leading with, um, even though this will inform how kids think about social justice you're just saying from a very clear point, look, the Smithsonian American Art Museum is very open to having difficult conversations. What we're not okay with doing is saying, this is what's right in relationship to this particular issue. These are the artists that we have collected, and these are the things those artists have said. And you may ask questions, how does this particular artist think in relationship to this? But that's not necessarily what the Smithsonian American Art Museum is telling you to think. And I just think that I was—I just think that that's really valuable, um, and it, that it always comes back to um, that idea of that inquiry-based method, right? Like it's okay to have more questions at the end of something than you had when you started, and the key is: yep. this, can you can you can you get good at asking questions? You know, I'll ask my right. kid. I heard it somewhere. Um, someone in an interview and it became something that I would ask my son every day. I would say, did you ask any good questions at school today? And, uh, oh, yeah. and, and so, and, and that was, I was so grateful for that language that someone gave me. It's, it's such a simple sentence and he would be 
oh, well, you know, and that's like, look, and I, and I tease him and I say, look, diseases aren't going to get cured if you don't ask good questions, you know, no pressure, 12 year old. Um, but, but it is really important, I think, to, to ask good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a skill that needs to be learned. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I like about what um, what what I learned in doing the 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 video conferences with you all is that it I, I had to learn really quickly as the person in the room physically with students, and then also had to kind of walk them through. It's like, hey, this is not this is not an entertainment thing. This yes, the someone is on a screen. But they're there to have a conversation with you and you have to ask them questions and then they might yep. return back by asking you questions and then you might ask even more questions. And so that what I love about that and, and you have pointed it out, volunteers have pointed it out, that it really becomes an interactive experience. It doesn't work well if you just think, oh, I can turn this on for 45 minutes and I'm going to sit at my computer and then Peg or a volunteer from the Smithsonian American Art Museum is going to run my class for the day. But it's not what happens, right? What happens is that you position a group of kids. My experience has been they're always excited, whether they're high school students or um, younger kids, is they're always excited about getting to talk with someone who's from Washington, right? They're excited that you all are from, from outside of their state. And that's a really cool thing for them is that you are, you know, are, and I'm sure you get the questions, are you really in Washington right now? Is that where you really are? Um, I got to tell you, the teacher loves being able to say, and what time is it back there? You know, if we're talking to Okinawa or to, you know, Italy or Belgium. And I tell them, and the kids seem to be nonplussed these days. And I attribute it to the fact that they're probably on their cell phones or tablets at any time of day or night. Right. So when it's 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, it's like, eh, big deal, you know? <laughs> right. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about that came up in our, our pre-conversation or our pre-interview was um, the idea of being, being a museum educator. You could have spent your time and talents um, in a traditional classroom doing similar kinds of things, but but you chose a different path. You chose to be a museum educator. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that um, field and how you maybe came to know about it and then what you would like to encourage people as they're talking to kids about um, opportunities for careers, what you might want them to, to, to let, let kids know that, that being a museum educator can, what kind of doors that would open for them. Okay, so um, I studied, I had a dual major as an undergrad, and I always intended to be an art teacher and went into a middle school classroom, loved it, but did not like the administration. They managed, the eighth graders managed to have a two-day sit-down strike, and I just couldn't believe that, first of all, they needed to reach that point, and second of all, the administration really ignored them. So I then happened to find out that there was a new museum being built at Cornell University, went and applied to teach there during the summer, and found out that there was a whole new way of interacting with artworks that wasn't just come on in and copy the masters. And because my undergraduate degree had 
trained me and to think about how people perceive information, personalize it, and then interpret and express it back out. I was really learning skills, a process, not an end product. Like I didn't wasn't trained to be a painter or to be somebody, you know, dealt with, uh, you know, frame. I was being trained to think about how people think. And that's how I started the programs at uh, Cornell University at that museum. And then that, uh, the work that I did there uh, had me be invited to go to the Seattle Art Museum. And from there, I moved to a number of different museums, including the Natural History Museum here at the Smithsonian. And then now I've ended up at American Art. But all the time, I'm constantly trying to outreach to school world because I feel that they and the skills that they want students to learn are doing exactly what is needed to be able to make a museum exist. So, for example, the director is equivalent to the principal of the school. The person who runs the media center is equivalent to those of us who are tracking what that artwork is, the condition of it, where it's being loaned, is it being placed on display. We've got curators who are experts, and they're equivalent to teachers. So if a student gets excited about a structure and how a museum operates and can see the equivalent of that as the system that's making their school operate, I felt there were skills that would help them learn in both situations. So again, I'm focusing on the learning skills, not just the end product. I love that idea of, of how thinking about artwork is a, is a process and a skill that allows you to think about the world in a really deep way, and that it isn't just about being able to say, um, well, that painting is made by this person, it was made in 1962, and it is part of this particular school. Next, right? Like you are showing folks, and what you were learning was a process of asking questions, diving deeper, and and investigating the world in just a really rich way and i and i think that that is really really valuable um well peg i really appreciate you being here today but before we go i'm really excited to kind of dive in to a little bit of more kind of personal information about you and i'm wondering what you're grateful for right now um, we are in a kind of tumultuous time in our country's history and for you and i both personally these are these a lot of the things that we're seeing are new um, and I'm wondering um, about a thing, a person, and a place that you uh, might be grateful for. And so let's start with a thing. All right. Um, I realize the more that I work with distance learning and sit all day long at a computer, my hands, which are always important sources of information to me, they literally itch to be able to work with ceramics and clay. So I am a big collector of ceramics and at the same time love clay as a way of being able to express myself, not having to use words, just shapes and positive and negative spaces. So in terms of the thing that would be important to me is to always be able to engage my hands that way. In terms of person, uh, I would have to start off by saying my parents because having been the child of a military family, I 
always appreciate the fact that my father, when he was stationed in Japan and brought us over, that he didn't have us live on the military base. He had rented the summer home of a kabuki actor who so we were completely immersed in Japanese culture when I was four years old and had my fifth birthday there. So it was a time that I didn't realize until later on in my life that I was the minority. I had to understand a whole new culture, a whole new language, a whole new way of eating, let alone bathing. And that was some of my earliest memories. So you know, when you go back to the thing, I went back to celebrate my 30th birthday over there and apprentice myself to a potter and travel the whole country studying art forms and culture over there. So that leads to the place. I would always love to go back to Japan. I've spent now more than four years there. And so you can see how thing, person, and place are all tied together. I love that you told us this story through those thing, person, and place. It's becoming one of my favorite questions to ask during this podcast. I think that that's very, very, very cool. Um, and I learned that about you. I did not know um, that you had that love of ceramics and at such a deep level. Um, can you tell folks how to um, get in touch with you or where to go on a website so that they can find out more about how to start collaborating with um, Sam and its collection? Sure. If they go to, and this is the URL for my museum, American Art, treat that as one word, dot SI, which stands for Smithsonian Institution, dot EDU. So it's American Art, dot SI, dot EDU. And when they get to the website, they can click on education and they can then click on video conferencing or you know, video conference from the classroom or classroom learning, and they'll be able to see all those topics. You're not going to yet see social commentary, social action on there, because we're going to be adding that in about a month to there. But that'll give you all the information you need to be able to schedule it. And as Mike said earlier, it's all free. Take advantage of this. And I think now... Um, more than ever, as schools are thinking about hybrid models, I think that teachers um, could really utilize this as interesting ways to engage their students. So perhaps asking questions while they are in session, using the Smithsonian, learning how to ask those really rich questions so that when they are um, in a possible hybrid situation where they're working with their students virtually, they can always kind of fall back and say, hey, remember when we were talking about this? Remember when we were able to look at these kinds of things? That's just one of the ways I could think of right now that how you all could be even more powerfully used um, with, uh, with what people are doing in education. Definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, I, I'm also grateful that I work with a wonderful, enthusiastic, passionate group that really believes in learning through art. And all you have to do is just contact us and you can discover it for yourself. Well, that's great. Thank, thank you so much for being here today. Um, and thank I, you. Yeah, and I look forward to connecting some of our incredible Tennessee visual art educators to you all. And hopefully they will then connect folks in their building 
um, who are not art educators, but just people who are interested in connecting kids with um, the, like you said, the, the process and understanding of how to ask really great questions. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening to another episode of The Art of Outreach. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to hearing from everybody.